climate was an essential aspect of the development of modern architecture. That role of climate was not peripheral or in passing, but was in fact often the kind of ways in which architects would present and promote the modern idiom as a solution to a given site was to say, well, we can use this building to produce a different type of interior. We can manipulate the design conditions largely through shading to produce a comfortable interior in many different global sites. And the kind of effects of that produce something of a different narrative in terms of how one sees the development of design ideas relative to not only climate, but socio-political trends and questions of colonization and development. My name is Daniel Barber. I am an architectural historian and theorist and wrote the book Modern Architecture and Climate Design Before Air Conditioning. My first book was on a history of solar house heating, mostly in the American context and the period surrounding World War II. That was initial sort of a first kind of prying open of the history of modernism to understand how environmental issues played a role. The kind of gist is that most modern architects practicing in the U.S. were aware of solar patterns and how to adjust their basic design ideas to maximize capturing and in some cases even insulating that radiation. This book actually started as part of my dissertation. It became clear it was something of a different story. I took it out of there and that ended up being the Solar House book. So this has sort of germinated about 15 years now. It covers a period from roughly 1930 to 1960. And one could say that air conditioning took off after the war in heavily industrialized American context in particular. So it's not only that it's chronologically previous to the expansion of air conditioning, but the premise is also that it was a necessary means to conceptualize this thermal interior space to make it available to engineering knowledge that would then produce a number of standards conditions, regulations relative to how buildings should be cooled, heated, humidified, dehumidified. The first part of the book is the globalization of the international style and to suggest that the ways in which modern architecture became global was through its capacity to manage what were seen as adverse climatic conditions, largely in the global south. So examples in Brazil, examples in Puerto Rico, of course not quite the global south, but nonetheless a politically compromised region. And then American embassy projects throughout Africa as a means to really try to understand that the way that architecture, modern architecture proliferated in the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, was often as a means to say we can provide a familiar normative interior environment through the deployment of various design strategies. Shading was prominent and the book is very focused on the facade and the shading mechanisms that were designed on the facade as the medium for a lot of that provision of comfort, but also general materials, orientations, plantings of trees, of course roofs and double roofs and various other strategies that allowed for the interior to transform. So the first part focuses on that general premise that part of the project of architectural modernism was directly related to climatic management or the management of the thermal interior. The second half, which is called the American Acceleration, 
then identifies how, on the one hand, American schools and journals and architectural discussions in general became a site to make more scientific this climate aspect of modernism and very much seen as being in the tradition of modern architecture and in the most prominent case of the Olgiai brothers, Victor and Aladar Olgiai, who researched at Princeton throughout the 50s, uh, seeing themselves you know, very much as a legacy of Le Corbusier. So on the one hand, it's an acceleration that's about a kind of elaboration of these principles and ideas of climate adjustments in, in modern architecture. But on the other hand, it's a recognition that the conceptual framework that began to be deployed of making the interior a space of comfort that could be scientifically determined and produced, that that sort of gesture that said, as architects, we control the thermal conditions of the interior was later uh, taken over, if you will, or absorbed into the engineering conditions of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning provision, such that this American acceleration is also about a dramatic increase in the use of fossil fuels to maintain the interior conditions of buildings. So it's an acceleration of knowledge. It's a sort of scientification of what was almost a kind of modern interpretations of vernacular knowledge that become very scientific in the post-war period in the U.S., but it's also very much an acceleration of the use of carbon fuels and the subsequent carbon emissions that became a necessary part of modern buildings after the war. In a way, it's part of a question of how did we get at this point where, you know, we all are not all by any stretch, but the kind of normative model of living in an air-conditioned space, how did we get here and kind of how do we get out of here? Because clearly we can't sustain this. Air conditioning versus before air conditioning in terms of building production is a radically different technological apparatus. The way to build a building that is mechanically cooled and heated versus sort of managed through architectural means are, are just two very different processes. You know, one of the first sealed office buildings, the Equitable Building, completed in 1947 in Portland by Pietro Belushki, was very focused on using energy capacity that had been ramped up during the war to say, let's use some of that energy to heat and cool this building. But the main point is that when you're building a skyscraper with air conditioning and mechanical heating, the floor heights are very different. You need a drop ceiling to house the various ventilation shafts and other things to move the air around. Your facade is not necessarily organized relative to solar incidents. The orientation of the building is less important. Even the thermal capacity of materials become less important as everything is managed by that HVAC system. And I even tell the story in the book of some instances when buildings very early on in the UK in the late 50s that were trying to sort of copy some of these American models didn't build the floors high enough. So they couldn't fit all of that mechanical stuff and also have a floor to ceiling height that was familiar, that was comfortable. And one of the simultaneous implications is that because all of those issues were managed through mechanical systems, legacies of modernism that were interpreted as such in the 50s and 60s had nothing to do with these questions of climate management or thermal comfort. All of these things that were now just sort of taken over by HVAC engineers, but were focused almost exclusively and in fact quite aggressively on formalism. Depeche Chakrabarti, in his relatively well-known essay, The Climate of History, makes this basic claim that as historians, we've kind of assumed some form of continuity from past and present into future, and that now we're sort of flummoxed. We don't know what's going to come next in terms of the 
survival of the species or the sort of modes of inhabitation of the planet, however dramatic you want to get. So there's that basic question, which says that writing history has been inflected or impacted by the fact that we don't understand our future in the same way. And I think when you're talking, first of all, about climate change, which is necessarily a historical phenomenon, and then also about architecture, one could say, generally speaking, the concerns of the field have tended to look towards the future. Of course, very much so in the case of architectural modernism. These things kind of come together to suggest that the ways in which we understand the relationship of the past to the present and future is under transformation. And in particular, the book I'm suggesting becomes a place where a lot of these questions are being negotiated, even sort of battling out the value of this history has changed over time. In fact, as I say in the introduction, it's a sort of history of the past that might also augur some sort of future, uh, very precisely. I mean, some of these devices and systems and objects that I'm looking at can be uh, unclipped from this historical past and reattached to some contemporary buildings to help them manage a reduced carbon or carbon-free future. Most of the technical knowledge, if you will, that's embedded in the book is not of contemporary relevance because it's been expanded upon so dramatically. But the cultural gesture that says part of what architecture does is mediate between interior spaces of culture and the kind of unpredictable exterior forces of climate, and to do so in a way that involves different habits, involves the body, involves different social projects. The capacity for a flowering of culture and satisfaction of desire and self-realization and kind of aspirations for a better world are very much in concert with the reduction of carbon. And that what these examples show is in simple terms that buildings can be beautiful without using fuel or with using significantly less fuel. There is a sort of cultural dynamism to the practice of climate adaptability that can be rich and exciting and formulate new ideas and produce new ways of life that are not lives of scarcity and want, but that are just sort of formulated differently, different ways of being in the world that are no less rich, but that are just sort of founded on a, a completely different basis in terms of resources, in terms of mechanical systems, etc. Daniel Barber's book, Modern Architecture and Climate, Designed Before Air Conditioning, is out now from Princeton University Press. Thinkbelt.org slash interstitial has the transcript, recommendations for further reading, and more episodes. Interstitial is also available wherever you get podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. It helps make it more discoverable. Sound design is by Sam Clapp. I'm David Huber. More next week.